0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area.
1: Let's take our Bibles, open them to 1 Timothy chapter 3. This evening, we resume our study, the office of the pastor, and this takes us to the last T in the Baptist acrostic. Baptists believe that there are two offices of leadership for the church, the pastor and the deacons. This is the eighth message in this series on the pastor's office, and that reflects the importance of the pastor's position. And perhaps it shouldn't be this way, but there are many people who choose a church based upon the pastor. Who is the pastor of the church? If they like him, great. If not, then they dismiss the church and look for another one. And that's kind of understandable because the the pastor is the public persona of the church. He is the uh, face, you might say. He's the public display of the doctrines and the attitudes of the people. And so if you don't like the pastor, it's probably likely that you won't like the church either. But on the other hand, what we ought not to do is to think of the church and the pastor as being the same, or that the pastor is more important than the doctrines that we preach or the Christ that we serve. Uh, We need to separate pastor and church, but sometimes this is the thing that happens, that people get enthralled with the man, and they like the man, and they're more excited about him than they are about the doctrines that are in God's Word. And so they'll follow a pastor like that, no matter how bizarre his beliefs may be. So I'm telling you that we, what we do need to do is to separate personality from doctrine and examine a man from the Scriptures to make sure that he meets all of the qualifications as the Word of God describes them, and he fits that in all ways and would be qualified to be the pastor. And this text in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the basic beginning of that examination. This is the outline of his personal character with some extension into the doctrines that he teaches. Now, if we'll look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll read the verses again. Uh, Verse number 1 says, This is a true saying, If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, But patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest, being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into the reproach and snare of the devil Uh, verses two through seven are the list of qualifications for part number four of our outline uh, which is the personal character of the pastor and in order to keep the outline in in order let's just start at the top of this list again these are the characteristics that we've already discussed Uh, first that a pastor is to be blameless next he is a one woman man He is temperate, that's third. And then fourthly, he is gentlemanly. And I've given a good amount of space to those first four uh, characteristics. We talked a little bit about hospitality as well. So we're not going to go through those same things again tonight. So we're going to move on to the next one on our list. This will be the fifth one, letter E, on your listening sheet. And this one is the word didactic. Didactic. Preachers are preaching... Shouldn't be all that hard for you to understand, but I, I think it's good if you, uh, to listen and maybe learn some new vocabulary words uh, as we go along, learn some new things, so you might not know what didactic means, but that's a word that means instructive, it means capable of instructing others, or as this text says, that a pastor must be apt to teach. And I use the word didactic because if you do very much Bible study, you're going to run across this. Uh, it comes from the word didache, which is translated as doctrine 30 times in the King James Version. And in this text, it's the root word that we find here for teach, apt to teach. That's the word didacticos. So what we have here is the only characteristic in the list that's not a character issue. Uh, uh, it's the only one that refers to the pastor's function in the office that he must be able to teach. So a logical question for us to ask is, how did this end up in this list? Apt to teach. How does that get in with all these moral qualifications and other things that we have here? Well, that's really a good question. And I think that the reason that it's here is to show us that a pastor has to live up to the doctrines that he teaches. In other words, the moral authority for you to listen to what the pastor says is the pastor's life. That The pastor can't be separated from that, uh, those things that he teaches. There are very few people that will listen to a hypocrite. They, they might if they don't know the person is hypocritical. But there's a very peculiar thing about hypocrites, and that is hypocrites don't like hypocrites for some reason. They don't like them, and so when someone finds out that you are a hypocrite... Uh, they'll stop listening. Now, to some degree, all of us are hypocritical, so we're not talking about a person who is perfect. Uh, If we had to have perfect people, we couldn't have a pastor. But a pastor should be humble enough to admit his mistakes and not to live a lie. And so when people do find out that that's what a pastor's doing, then their ears are closed, the ministry then becomes ineffective. But we still have to look at what Paul might have meant as well as he talked about being apt to teach. And I think it shows us that the pastor's chief responsibility is to handle the Word of God. And I I think that we might look at it this way, that apt to teach got into this list because perhaps the Apostle Paul didn't want us to forget in going through all the characteristics, the the moral issues, that there is this one central thing that still hangs out there that a pastor has to teach the people of God. And he has to be able to teach them in a way that is understandable. That's what apt to teach means. He's got to be able to teach the people in a way that they get what he's saying, that it's understandable. So teaching is imperative. And before I get to all of that, I do need to emphasize this, that the pastor must teach. There isn't a purpose in the biblical sense for a pastor unless everything that he does is centered on the Word of God. If you need advice... There are counselors that can give you advice. If you want a pep talk and you need encouragement, Tony Robbins can help you. Or even Joel Osteen might be good for that, if that's all that you want. If you want a friend, there are places that you can go to find a friend. If you need support, there are 12-step support programs, plenty of those that you can find. My function as the pastor may involve all of those things, but all of them have to be drawn from the Word so that everything else that I do is incidental to this one thing. And that is I teach you the Word of God. That's the most important thing that I can do. And I have to stand up here believing that the Word of God is the most important thing in your life. And so I need to know it and I need to preach it. Uh, I I know that these these are comments that sound reasonable to you. You expect me to say these things. But there are some churches that you can attend that they can't imagine that the pastor would be anything more than a life coach. Or the pastor is someone who's a pep coach for you. If you look at the advertisements of churches today, there's almost always a line that says this, The pastor's preaching is relevant. It is relevant. And usually when they say relevant, they're not talking about the Bible. Relevant is a code word for sermons that'll be more likened to seven ways of getting along with your boss, uh, five steps to financial success, four principles of overcoming disappointment, and on and on it goes. So if we announce that what we're going to do is preach the Bible, then people say, what? Preach the Bible? How can that possibly be relevant to this day and age? An ancient book, how is that relevant to the modern world? And the problem with many preachers is they don't know the answer to that question or they don't care about the answer to it. And they're not going to preach the Bible because it's much, much easier to preach pop psychology. So this would be the first here, that, that he must be determined to preach the Word. And I think that a pastor ought to do that expositionally. He should do what I'm doing for you tonight, uh, what we do here in Brian Baptist Church, that we look through the Scriptures, we take the verses, and we break them down, and we show what they, what they mean and how they apply to our lives. Now, as we look at the moral side of it, the pastor has to make the Word believable by showing how the Word of God works for him. If the Word of God is relevant, and it has done something for my life, then it's going to be relevant to you as well. Both of us live in the modern world. So if the Word of God does something for me, then I'm quite sure that it will do something for you. But if the Word of God doesn't change me, and if I can't live by the Word of God, then why should anybody think that the Word of God would be good for them? So the pastor has to demonstrate the Word. I can't tell you to trust God if I don't trust God. I can't tell you, don't worry about things, if all I ever do is worry about things. I can't tell you that you should pray without doubting. And then you hear me say, well, I'm not quite sure that's going to work. We've got to have another plan. Oh, a pastor has to teach the Word. He's got to be able to communicate it well. If I speak for 45 minutes and then at the end you have no idea what I said, then what good is it? You know, I hope that uh, the sermons make sense to you. I like to organize sermons. I like to have a beginning to them. I like to have a middle of my sermon I like to have an end, which is your favorite part, is when we finally do get to the end. But I like to do it that way. I I want a flow of information from one point to the next point. I want you to be able to take each point and see, well, there's a logical progression here. There's something to be learned. And that's the way I like to organize. And so in my sermons, what I often do is, at the end of a sermon, I'll bring you full circle around to what we began with many, many times. And we rehearse the subject that came up at the very beginning. That's the point that we're trying to develop. But you'll often hear sermons that are random collection of thoughts. They don't really go anywhere. They don't really take you anywhere. And so at the end of a sermon you ask, what was that for? And many preachers leave us in that position. But I know that I've done my job when someone goes out of the service and says, now I understand. And I appreciate it when there are people that may miss something and they want Further clarification on a point. I realize that every point that's made in the sermon doesn't hit you like a bolt of lightning of understanding and enlightenment. That doesn't happen all the time. And so you may say, well, what what did he mean by that? What, What are you talking about? And that's okay. A pastor needs to know that you're listening. If you don't understand something, then fine, ask about it. The pastor needs to be able to go back through it again and help you to connect the dots. As I've told you and you know by looking at your bulletins that I plan uh, sermons weeks in advance, so that means that, you know, four or five weeks ago, I've looked at this sermon, and I put my thoughts and thoughts down on paper, and then I come back to it weeks later. I come back to it this week, and I start to go back over the, uh, the sermon, the notes that I've made, and sometimes I find myself having to think back through the points again, that what I've written I didn't even understand, I mean, I, I, at the second time around, I, don't, I may ask myself, why did I write that? I mean, what, what's the main point that I'm trying to make here? And then there are times when I'm preaching a sermon that as I'm talking, I'm thinking, and I realize there's another point that can be made here. Something's just come to me, Something I'm just re- re- revealed to me as, I, as I'm reading the text. So if you don't get a sermon the first time I go through it, that's all right. Uh, I'm not going to complain because sometimes I don't either. And I'm the one that's preaching it. Now, let me also say that if sermons sermons are not thought-provoking in some degree, they're too easy. I'm not helping you to learn anything if you aren't growing, if you aren't stretched a little bit in understanding. And so what we try to do is to give you more than just the standard fare that you get in many churches... Uh, we want to look into the deeper doctrines of the Word. Each of the doctrines that we teach must focus on Christ. Everything that we do in the church is going to bring us to the cross of Christ. Every program that we have, every class that we have, every meeting that takes place, somehow will lead us to Christ. It will lead us to the encouragement of lost people to receive Christ, and it will lead us to the growth of God's people. And that's what you do when you teach every subject in the Word of God without leaving anything out. It equips you in your understanding of the entire Word of God. If you look at New Testament quotations of Old Testament Scriptures, I mean, just to give an example of how the apostles dealt with preaching the Word of God, there are New Testament quotations of Old Testament Scriptures, and they're always followed up with applications of important doctrine. For instance, when Jesus uh, taught about Abraham, well, he was going somewhere with that. As he taught about Abraham, he taught about his own divinity. He he taught the doctrine of the Trinity as he talked about Abraham. When Jude mentioned in the book of Jude, Enoch, that led him right into the teaching of the second coming. When you read Paul in the book of Romans, and um, he mentions Old Testament scripture, he talks about Adam, that leads him into a discussion of, total depravity, or into the atonement of Christ. But we look at the way that many modern Baptist preachers look into the Old Testament and other portions of Scripture, and they pick up a text like David and Goliath. And as they look at that story, they turn the story of David and Goliath into a sermon about overcoming big problems in your life. what's wrong with that picture? I'm sure, how many of you have heard a sermon like that? David and Goliath is about overcoming the giant in your life. Well, that's a lack of ability to put the Old Testament Scriptures into their proper context. You need to know, how does that story fit the context of that passage? And it was not about David overcoming the big problem in his life. So we've got to know the Scriptures according to the author's original intent in order that we can preach it accurately. Albert Barnes said, a man who would teach people must himself keep in advance of them on subjects on which he would instruct them. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the importance of that statement. The pastor is not to leave you at the bottom floor of understanding because he's incapable of taking you to the next level. The object is growth. The object is to increase the understanding of the faith. And so the pastor has to keep himself abreast of learning and doctrine so that he's ready to move you up to another level. Many ministries are too shallow to do that. They're not capable of doing that. Calvin made an interesting comment about the depth of teaching in the Roman Catholic Church. How many of you ever heard a Roman Catholic say something like this? Well, the priest sure did take us deep into theological thought today in his preaching. In fact... In a Roman Catholic church, they don't even call it preaching or a sermon. It's a homily. It's a homily. You're not going to hear Roman Catholics say, well, we sure deep, we're deep into the Word of God today. So you have to ask your question, why is it that Roman Catholics don't know very much? Well, it's because the Roman Catholic church has the idea, the priest in the parish has the idea, that the, the instruction is to be left to the colleges, to the seminaries, to bishops, over the large institutions of Roman Catholicism. But here's what Calvin said about it, which I thought was interesting. He said, But everybody knows how far it is from observing Paul's rule to assume the title of bishop and boast proudly of enacting a character without speaking, provided only that they make their appearance in a theatrical dress, as if a horned miter, a ring richly set in jewels, or a silver cross, or other trifles, accompanied by idle display, constituted the spiritual government of a church which can no more be separated from doctrine than any one of us can be separated from his own soul. And you may think, well, what does that mean? Well, let me distill that for you in a Baptist context. And that is for the preacher to show up here in his suit and his tie and to pay attention to whether the ladies over here on the instruments hit the wrong key or to be worried about the decorum of the platform, where the chairs are and who sits in those chairs, and to be worried about things like, like uh, whether the singers have put on a stellar performance today and then not teach the people the Word of God, that is a travesty for God's people. Because what you can't do is you cannot separate the doctrines of the faith any more from the church any more than you can, as Calvin said, separate you from your own soul. And so, the Word of God as I said, needs to be taught. And so you need to be led into deeper subjects. This is inherent in this word teach, didacticos, instructive. And so you read the New Testament and you look at the doctrinal discourses of the epistles. Paul instructs us as he did Timothy. The subject matter is broad and he told Timothy, Don't fail to preach. Do not fail to commit these doctrines to others. And so we find the Apostle Paul throughout his epistles constantly encouraging this. Teach, teach, teach! Keep teaching the Word of God. And... The subject matter that flows out of what Paul teaches is first, many times, begins with a simple gospel, but then something else flows out of Romans 1 and Romans 3, Romans 5, Romans 8 and 9, Galatians chapter 1 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We start out with a very simple gospel, but before he's done, he leads us into the great doctrines of the faith. We need a simple gospel. The apostle's always sure to give that to us, but then he's also sure to follow it up with, Solid, hardcore doctrine. And so teaching is a function of the pastor's job. And I think it gets into this list of character issues because a man has to have a certain disposition. And that is a disposition of desire to study the Word. He's not to be characterized by laziness, but a drive to study the Word, to search it out, and and to live the Word. 1 Timothy 5.17 says... To give the elder double honor who does that. That he's the best pastor who labors in word and doctrine. And so we need to get that. The one who labors in it. The one who works hard at it. Who spends time on it. And there isn't a better compliment than a pastor to hear someone say, Well, it's it's evident that you spend a great deal of time on your sermons. And we don't do it to fish for compliments... We do it because the sermon is no good for you if we don't. And so I think that a fair question for a pastoral candidate would be, how much time do you spend on sermon preparation? And if that's less than the time that you spend on other duties, it's going to show up in the pulpit. And eventually it's going to show up in how much you learn about the Word of God. And so as far as a character issue, this has to be ingrained. There's got to be a work ethic in the man. Uh, This is one of the reasons that I shifted my workstation from church to home. It's just a matter of time. It's a function of time. That gives me more time to prepare sermons for you. Uh, It also is a reason that time accumulates. And as it accumulates, it comes to the point that a pastor needs rest. Every quarter, I try to take a little bit of time away. But even when I go to visit my grandkids... Uh, in San Diego, there are times of study while I'm there. In fact, this particular sermon was completed at my daughter in San Diego's dining room table. And then, while we're on the subject, since there isn't a lot of other room to to bring these things into this particular text, I think that I need to mention them now. Uh, as we look at this text, it mentions the the it concentrates on the pastor in relation to the people, but it does not concentrate on the people in relation. To the pastor, that that will come later, and so the first the church needs to be mindful of the stresses of pastoring. Now this is not a cry me a river speech, so you don't need a violin to accompany me as I tell you what I'm about to tell you. I, this is just a statement of fact. Okay, the pastor is mindful of the scripture in Matt, uh, rather James three verse number one, where it says, "My brethren." Be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. Would that add a little bit of stress to your life? It's a requirement. The pastor has to give an account. But the pastor accepts that. But because he accepts it as a requirement, doesn't mean that there's any less stress. Secondly, there are the disappointments. There's the heartache. When people that you've tried to teach and they act like they're your friends, turn on you. That happens. A pastor has to be able to live with that. Richard Baxter, the Puritan divine, wrote in his book, The Reformed Pastor, he said, We must bear with many abuses and injuries from those to whom we seek to do good. When we have studied for them and prayed for them and exhorted them and beseeched them with all earnestness and condescension, and given them what we are able, and tended them as if they were been, had been our own children, we must look that many of them will requite us with scorn and hatred and contempt, and account us their enemies because we tell them the truth. Now we must endure all this patiently, and we must unweirdly hold on in doing good in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. We have to deal with distracted men who will fly in the face of their physician. But we must not, therefore, neglect their cure. He is unworthy to be a physician who will be driven away from a frantic patient by a few foul words. Thirdly, there are the numbers of people that a pastor has to deal with and the diversity of those people. Some church members handle things very well. They're solid. Their faith is strong. You don't have to hold hands with them very much. But then there are other Christians that, that they're very high maintenance. And there's always a crisis that's going on in their life. And they don't know how to handle that. And they're ticking time bombs just ready to go off. And the pastor knows that uh, it, it's not going to be long before there's something that sets that person off. And the pastor knows that it's coming. He just doesn't know when. It happens many times at the most inopportune times. That's one of the things you need to pray uh, to the Lord about uh, the pastor for. Consider that the pastor is always waiting for the next crisis. And many times he's in one, just waiting for the next one. Fourthly, there's the hours that a pastor works. That's a minimum usually of about 60, more often upwards of 70. On weeks, weeks that I might be gone, those hours can rise to 80 before I go because the work doesn't stop because I'm not here, so everything has to be prepared if I leave. So here's the point of all this. It's that the church should regard the pressures that a pastor is under and pray for those things. And you need to consider that before you, you decide that you're going to pound on the pastor uh, for things that you don't like, for something that's gone wrong. Consider what he has to go through through the week and dealing with so many diverse people and all the problems that there are before you decide some little bitty thing just doesn't suit you so well. And then for goodness sake, don't come into the office five minutes before it's time for me to preach with bad news. That happens a lot too. But I agree to accept those difficulties. Uh, I don't try to get out of them. 14 years we've been going through this. Uh, Soon to be 15. Hopefully it'll be longer. Don't feel sorry for me. Just support me. Support the effort. Well, these are things that the church needs to be taught. This is one of the things I told you at the beginning when I went into the introduction of this series, that a lot of these things here are very personal things, and, and if I don't tell them to you, who will? I mean, I'm the one that's charged with the responsibility of preaching these things to you, so I'm the only one that can tell you this. There isn't anybody else to do this. So this is why I teach it. So let's go on now. Next is an interesting statement beginning uh, at the beginning of verse number 3 that says, not given to wine. And to this I say that the pastor must be a teetotaler. Now let me repeat what I said a few messages ago before I started the list, that there's nothing in the qualifications of a pastor that aren't good for every single member of the church. I think that you would look at the list and you would say, well, this represents to us, optimal christianity and really this is where every christian ought to be you expect that the pastor is going to be at the head of the list of all of these qualifications all the moral qualifications but isn't this also the place where every christian should be and if you're a lady of the church and you'd say well there's so many things there that don't apply to me what the male the male specific qualifications are only emblematic of the moral qualifications of women blameless that's good for a woman A one-man-woman? The pastor's a one-woman man. You ought to be a one-man-woman. And so on with the other qualifications. But we come to this one that says, not given to wine. And it's totally contrary in my thinking that we would have to spend any time talking about this, that we would need to talk about drinking alcohol. This ought to be self-evident. This verse is a prohibition against it. Now, the teetotaling movement, teetotaling temperance movement that caused the passage of the 18th Amendment put it in the forefront of of people in the 19th and 20th centuries, pastors during that time, that drinking alcohol is totally unacceptable. Now, that movement uh, was supported by evangelical Christians, and there would never have been an amendment passed if, if there weren't a lot of Christians that were taking a strong stand against it and uh demanded that 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 be put in place, but a little bit later on, there was a strong push for an appeal of that amendment, and almost a hundred years have passed since that happened and Now here we are finding ourselves again preaching against the use of alcohol and There's some who look at this text and they defend it by saying that well, what Paul meant here was drunkenness, not not given to wine means not to drink to excess. But as I look at that, I would say, well, why, why did Paul need to say that? Why would he say such a thing? If he needed to say drunkenness, he'd say drunkenness. Drunkenness is too obvious to spell out as a qualification. Now, he might say that if he was dealing with people that are just infants in their understanding. And in that case, he would say, well, you know, another qualification a pastor must have, he must be a Christian. Well, that's too obvious for us, isn't it? I mean, he's not going to need to say that. Well, he doesn't need to say that a pastor shouldn't be a drunk. What he means to say is exactly what he said. A pastor's not to touch the stuff at all. Don't be known as a man who drinks alcohol. Why why not? Why not? Why don't you want to be known for that? Well, let me give you some good reasons. There's several of them. First of all, alcohol is tempting. A person who never drinks is never tempted to get drunk. He never has to count drinks to make sure that he hasn't had too much. He doesn't have to worry if uh, he can get in the car and whether he's going to need a church member to be his designated driver. Can you imagine a pastor out on visitation and he's had just a little bit too much and he's got a church member as a designated driver for him on visitation? pastor has enough temptation in his, in his, in his life that he doesn't really need to add more to it. Secondly, alcohol perverts good judgment. Proverbs says that wine is not for kings. Why not? Well, because it throws them off. It throws off the judgment. A wine stupor is not a place to be when you need to make a decision. So a preacher can't discuss the Bible when he's under the influence of booze. He needs to be filled with the Spirit, not drunk with wine. And then I always like to remind you that the Bible teaches that kings and priests were not to drink wine. And the New Testament, every believer is what, folks? Every believer is a king. Actually, the translation is kingdom of priest." And so for a New Testament believer, the prohibition against this would be far greater for him than it would be for a secular king. Thirdly is the associations of alcohol. There are just so many bad things that are connected to it. Families are broken over its use. How is a drinking preacher going to deal with a wife that her husband abuses her because of alcohol? How is he going to deal with children who have been neglected and they have rotten family lives because of drinking? And so they come to him and they ask him, how how, how would you instruct us on drinking? What would that pastor say to them? And then where does most of the drinking take place? Well, it takes place in about... Every seamy place, every place where there's a wicked vice has alcohol attached to it. Sex and gambling and other lewd acts. Alcohol flows freely in all of those. And so what alcohol does is put people where they shouldn't be, doing things they shouldn't do with people they shouldn't be doing it with. Three years ago, we had an outreach in in, uh, San Diego. Some of you remember that we passed out about a thousand evangelistic DVDs uh, at the Santa Rosa Marketplace. And there was a pastor on this DVD who gave a very impressive plea for salvation. Now, I'd not heard of the man before. Uh, later, I decided that I would look him up and I would just check out to see what he believed. I said he was very good on the DVD. And on his church website, uh, there, was, there was his bio. There, there were the things that were listed as his interest. What kinds of things does he like? What, what does he spend his leisure time doing? Those kinds of things. But but the last thing in that list was this statement. He enjoys a single malt scotch. Now those of you that know liquor, you probably know what that is. Uh, is that what you want in a pastor? I mean, would you like to see this in his bio? Uh, this qualifies him. He's a scotch drinker. That's interesting. Because the Bible says or teaches that anybody that would drink anything, or in Bible times at least, anybody that would drink anything with that much alcohol content was actually considered to be barbaric. Later I found out that this pastor had been kicked out of his church, and he was kicked out because he had an affair. He had wife, and kids, and so he was not only a drinker, he was an adulterer. And so we find that alcohol is a flavoring for many sins. And so I would say that a man who has that kind of judgment, that poor of judgment, is going to find himself in other compromising situations. So it's astounding to me that there's anybody in the ministry that would defend the use of alcohol. I mean, when you think, is there any redeeming quality that encourages preachers to use this stuff? How do you defend something that's caused so much harm? And yet there are preachers that do. what, What we call the young, restless, reformed, today do this. The big names in the in the reformed circles, I'm sad to say, are often drinkers, and they're advocates, advocates rather, of, of drinking on the basis of Christian liberty. I wouldn't let a man who drinks alcohol preach from this pulpit, not if I knew it. If a man's judgment is that bad, then I have to wonder what other things are a problem for him. So alcohol, that was a problem in Paul's day. It still is. The first incident of Drinking alcohol in the Bible was a bad one. That was a problem. That's when Noah got drunk, got off the ark, planted a vineyard, got drunk. His drunkenness was a sin. And what did it lead to? It led to a sin for his son. Stories about alcohol don't get better. Then we go on, and it says that, Paul says here that a pastor is not to be a striker. I I think that, that, I don't have a blank for you for that, but I think you could just slip that up underneath gentlemanly if you want to. I think it goes up with that category. Uh, One commentator said, he shouldn't be quick to hit people. And I thought, well, that's kind of an odd comment. And then I remembered that, well, I've often thought of doing that too. Uh, (laughs) Evidently, Paul thought that there were some who might, and so he added that in here, that he's not to be a striker, so you don't want somebody with that reputation. A few years ago, I, I read a book about... J. Frank Norris. How many have heard of J. Frank Norris? Anybody? Okay, one or two maybe. J. Frank Norris was what you would call a fighting fundamental preacher back in the 1920s, and uh, he was a big name preacher back at that time. And the book that I read about him, was the title of it is called The Shooting Salvationist, and it's the true story of how Norris shot a man in his office. Now, as I said, uh, Norris was a nationally known preacher, and And this was a really sensational story at that time, Uh, since he was nationally known that the press followed this trial of J. Frank Norris, and it was like the O.J. Simpson trial of the 1920s, I mean, everybody knew about this. And of course, the question in the trial was, did he shoot the man in self-defense? And that's the argument, was it in self-defense? Well, you would think that a pastor would need a gun in his office, but of course that's a different story. Uh, But we would have to say a pastor shouldn't be a shooter. I mean, that that puts in a whole new dimension here about the the respect for a pastor. You better respect the pastor, or one of two things can happen to you. You're going to get beaten silly if you don't, or you might get shot. So you better respect him. Another commentator said, well, this refers to the way that he handles the rebuke of sinners. And he said that a pastor can't be too harsh. Hitting people would be too harsh. Uh, I think I would agree with that. Uh, He can't be acid-tongued. He can't deeply wound someone to the point that he can't bring them back. And so the whole point here is that a pastor needs to be firm. He needs to be forceful in rebuke. But there has to be a balance there of gentleness as well so that he helps people, not drives them to wrath. And so you look for a man then that has the right temperament and i know that there're some pastors that aren't that way they exercise their authority with an ill temper and and they liken that that uh that sternness that they have and i've seen this that the sternness that they have the temper that they have they liken that to be to being uncompromising and i've heard them say things like this we we are the elijah we're the elijah who pounds the prophets of baal and we take no prisoners as lloyd Benston would say You, sir, are no Elijah. I've read about Elijah. I've studied Elijah. You, preacher, are no Elijah. So a pastor has to know how to handle his authority. We tend the flock of God. We don't eat them. We need to understand that. Seven o'clock, that's all I have time for tonight. So remember this. These are characteristics that are good for all Christians. This is essential for pastors, though. I mean, if these basics are not met, then the pulpit's in trouble. Sometime or another, the shortcomings are going to catch up. Those shortcomings will be visited upon the people. Eventually, the church suffers. And so what the pastors need to do is to protect the flock, keep the flock from harm. The pastor must help the flock in their conflicts, not add more conflicts to them. So we need to learn how to deal with these things. The Apostle Paul knows what he's talking about when he says, look for the right kind of temperance. Uh, uh, temper in a man that you choose to be the pastor. Good advice from the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the time and your word tonight. We just pray, Lord, that you would bless the word to us. Uh, we would get understanding from it, and these are all things that need to be taught, need to be looked into, because they are in the word of God. We thank you for the people of our church, and for the kindness and consideration that they have in Lord, none of what I've said tonight is a complaint. Uh, it's, all, it's all favorable because I recognize that your people here in this church are hearing something that sounds strange to their ears. They wouldn't think of doing some of the things that I've mentioned tonight. Lord, we just pray for your people. We pray for our church. We thank you for it. And bless us this evening, Lord. We give you the praise for it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this presentation